Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, getting number of thumbs up. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. This is the Sacred Mirror Session 2020, the third talk. So these are strange times on one hand. And from another hand, on the other hand, they're, they're normal. This is what it's like to exist in samsara. A groundless, ever-shifting world. But as in our time we have a little amplification of intensity, it may be that these are more vital times than ever to engage Dharma practice. The very concept of safety is under scrutiny. The myth, the myth, the legend, the dream of, of security. It's never more than a temporary convergence of causes and conditions. Something secured through much effort. The safety secured temporarily or the feeling of safety secured through someone else's stress and effort or many other people's stress and effort. So today in Portland, even the most vital element of bodily existence to breathe is not safe. We're told it's dangerous to breathe. The most vital, essential function. So nobody could ever promise us safety, even as we work together to create the most optimal conditions. We can look at anxiety as a dysfunction of the mind. And you can also see it's just the response a body-mind has to a world that has no security. Especially the, the, the essential kind of core pulsing of anxiety that's there even when we're in temporary safety. So because safety is ultimately a fancy of the mind, a cultural construct, because of that, Dharma practice is profound. It's one of the few ways of being and one of the few teachings that does not flinch from the facts of existence for a moment.
we could look at it from the perspective of, of compassion and wisdom. So compassion, stepping into that perspective, those eyes and heart, and looking out at living beings, looking at ourselves, and there's this deep impulse to comfort them and protect them and do whatever it takes to keep them safe. And in some ways, no matter what our circumstances, this is animating us only for how we take care of our cat or ourselves. At the very least, it's, it's animating us. And then shift into wisdom's eyes and heart and seeing that people can't actually find safety and further that investing much energy in external security is not wise. The body is never safe. The body is never safe. It, it will always be subject. It will always be um, a field of potential illness. The body is never safe. It's never safe from external threats, even if we had a country with no handguns and very low crime. There's always tornadoes, there's always fires, there's always tree limbs falling, car accidents. So inhabiting a body, there's no real, real safety. And then good fortune, a good fortune that many of us are contexted within, so we mostly enjoy our bodily life. There's so many things in that good fortune that can turn over in a flash. So many things. So bringing wisdom and compassion together, and we have a heartfelt connection and concern for beings and wishing them and helping them in whatever way we can to invest in the most reliable sources of well-being. The most reliable sources of well-being community and friendship, what's more valuable when things begin to fall apart than a, a true a true friend, being one and, and having one? Community and friendship, generosity, probably what defines a real friendship. Investing in the reliable source of well-being, of forbearance. And then, of course, concentration and insight. Because without concentration and insight, we just relate to the surface of life. 
and just relate to the echoes of our own mind and don't, can't see, see beyond. And Zazen calls forth all of these. We give a gift to others by practicing calm and forbearance. A person who has some access to non-reactivity is an enormous asset to a group that's under stress. Enormous asset when you can observe, like you can observe culturally, minds sliding into pessimistic conclusion or despair. The consciousness that is not caught by that, in contrast, could stand out as profound. Maintaining the the vital element of clarity. So Zazen calls forth, invites us to abide in the space before reactivity, larger than reactivity. And then with that, there is the access to empathy. In the teachings of the four immeasurables, especially in the Mahayana tradition, it's really emphasized that without equanimity, you really don't have loving kindness, compassion, or sympathetic joy, empathy. Equanimity is is the ground of those. Otherwise, our ability to access them and apply them is very limited. Maybe if it was a cultural norm or a global norm to train and to carry the feeling tone, the equanimity, the field effect of spaciousness, then what we would be doing would be not a big deal. Maybe it would be even indulgent. But because it's so profoundly uncommon some way in which this practice is a is a key element in balance i want to make a distinction between two kinds of calm and actually i want to make a distinction between calm and equanimity more specifically So by calm, I mean a tranquil system. Tranquil system. The nerves mellow. Body, mind, and equilibrium. Quality of relaxation. Mind not too busy. I 
think it's healing to spend time in this in this state. Quality of uh, recalibration, homeostasis. And in a sense, it's an ideal state, but not the only way to access insights into shunyata, into the the world that's seen when the scales are peeled from our eyes. And this calm is worth, from my perspective, investing the inner and outer resources in developing it. And it takes particular conditions for most of us in order to, to do that work. Relative safety being one of them that really helps. And if we cultivate it and we use it wisely, it can really pay off. But it is a state. It is a state because a human nervous system is... is not going to be turned into something else. This this living organism of sensation, we are defined by being sensate beings. It's not going to no longer be a sensate being that feels the spectrum of intensity. And so no matter how calm a state we arrive in, it is always subject to excitation. We love to get excited. Think about that. You know, on the on the slider scale of of excitation and kind of uh, flatness, we're always trying to move it one way or another. Let's move it up a little bit. I want to go see a movie. You know, I took myself to see the to see Tenant, so I could move my slider of excitation up, and I really regretted it because then when I got home, I wanted to move it back down to, you know, the other the other end of the spectrum. But we're always doing that. We, we try to control it, but life will do that anyway. You cannot, you can only be bored or excited for so long. And you can only be calm, this kind of calm to some degree. It's, it's fragile. So equanimity, on the other hand, is an even fielding of what arises and even allowing of it to depart. In other words, engaging the mode of non-preferentiality. Now, the part of us that has preferences doesn't do that. That's that's not its mode. Mm -hmm. Neuroscientists will tell you that there's a part of the, the brain, I believe it's the parietal frontal cortex, that is responsible or is the neurobiological correlate of discrimination, the part of the mind that is is distinguishing this from that and related to ranking good, bad, go towards it, go away from it. That is not the part of the mind that Access is non-preferentiality. 
Though the research shows that when we connect with equanimity, that part does mellow out. So non-preferentiality, not deciding anything rising up shouldn't be felt. And not concluding that some things shouldn't disappear. Examine our belief structure about what what is welcome in human experience. The, the belief structures about where and when I become violated by the natural conditions of life. So with Equanimity, rather than a bubble of calm, I always like to point this out. You can tell that your meditation is not the deepest vision you could tap when you feel like you're, you, you've you got this capsule and you're trying to keep other things out of it. You're doing, you're doing capsule meditation. Like one of those little plastic toys in the capsules that you put the money in and you try to get the good one. Capsule meditation depends on uh, keeping everything out of the inside. But this is different. So rather than really desiring an inner space where not a lot is going on, you hold space for whatever is going on. In a sense, you're the embracer and the embraced. None of this is dissociative. You're the embracer and the embraced. In some of the Himalayan teachings, they say it's the mind king, the mind queen, or the sovereign mind that encompasses benevolently its, its subjects, has this uh, embrace, this perspective, and yet shares in, shares in the experience. It's a freedom to feel and experience rather than a freedom from certain kinds of experiences. There's a really big difference there. We can look at our own practice and see, am I trying to have a freedom from particular experiences? It's one way of going about it. Equanimity is a freedom to feel and experience. Because not everything that we consider a disturbance or an unwelcome presence in the system is actually harmful. A lot of those presences, we've just decided that they're harmful. So, so much suffering and some people who are
definitely further along the path than me would say, if not all suffering rests on our definitions and operating beliefs of what should or shouldn't be happening to us or our lives. So if you have anxiety about um, the situation going on in Oregon with the fires, it's not that you shouldn't feel anxiety. That would be our own belief. It's not that anxiety is bad. What if that was completely allowed to rise up with no uh, judgment? It's a different relationship. So we have our rules about what is okay to experience. Of course, we're not getting like masochistic or, or indifferent. That's not. Sometimes the doubting mind likes to say, well, yes, but. You know, all. All conscious organisms rightly move away from pain when they can. But what we're talking about is how our, in a way, how our dignity shrinks, how our spirit can shrivel when we say no to some of the essential ingredients in life, some of the essential textures. So when we start looking at these operating beliefs and definitions of the should and shouldn'ts of human experience, it's where we leave practice being a mental faculty, something we're doing in our head, but rather an invitation to change our heart. It's where it really cuts, where it really penetrates deeply. Not just a, um, a new thing to do in our heads, but really a fundamental, fundamental reorientation. You know, to reorient and infuse our attitudes about life with a certain kind of sobriety. It's really easy to say these things. And not so difficult to practice them when we're not in crisis. But when crisis comes, the times we practiced it when we could have are when it will serve us. So we get feedback in our own bodies and minds about this, this, these fixed beliefs and what shouldn't be happening. You can be curious, what, what is that feedback in my own, my own body?
So these two, relative calm and an embracing equanimity, can work work together. They do, they do work together. I was talking to a Dharma friend, teacher of mine, and we were talking about the this very difficulty of in trying times. If we haven't yet learned to calm the mind, how do we do it? And she said, oh, I don't worry about that because just sitting does the work. So taking the posture of Zazen itself is an orientation to equanimity. To manifest backbone. As much as I like meditating on the couch, lying on my back, and sometimes that's all that's accessible to us, as much as I like those things, it's, it really is no substitute for some way of being upright, neither leaning forward nor leaning backward. So the posture itself is an orientation to equanimity, a settled body manifesting awareness. You actually don't have to do something beyond taking the posture. It's more, more true that you, it's good to not do something once you take the posture. So the sitting itself, the, the taking of the posture, is a kind of equanimity because we're sitting upright and as things unfold, we're not collapsing. Think about the parts of us that when there's emotional difficulty, we collapse, we kind of curl inward, we lose our backbone. We find that we are protecting our heart physically shoulders coming in, etc. And sitting upright, we are not collapsing. We're not vacating the body. We're inhabiting, inhabiting the whole of the body. Sometimes we have particular kind of Dharma growing pain. When we do retreat, we sit in the posture and we have inexplicable pain. And you think, that there's nothing wrong with my whatever. And what if that is the posture itself calling us into a further, deeper inhabitation of our own skin? There's nothing like pain to ground us in the animal body and the, the raw texture of the soma. So sitting upright, not collapsing, not vacating. I've said many times that sometimes there's been times in practice I noticed I vacated my heart unconsciously. Something was difficult to feel. The upright posture corrects that. So sitting like this, physically we enact, we be equanimity. 
in a sense, the body is more fundamental than the thinking mind because the body is the field for the subconscious. Right? You know, you can have a pretty calm mind and not be worried and all of a sudden a panic attack rises up. body reveals a deeper level of mind. So the posture itself is, is, is ripening, deepening, activating this capacity. And within this, there's awareness of mind at rest and mind active. Both agitation, activity, and calm are happening within that. It's like a frame. And both present opportunities to see directly the causes of suffering. So when the mind is active within this setup of equanimity, the posture, We can have insights into our narratives, into our reactivities. You can't do that if the mind's not agitated. So in that sense, it's gold. And we can have insight into the absence of reactivity, times of of stillness. They work together. It makes the opportunity to penetrate the workings of the mind kind of rich opportunity when you calm the mind down and you're awake and then you have a karmic explosion and stuff really rises up. Then you can see it like you've not seen it before. Then things can arise in non-identification. It's golden. And so with With this awareness lit, amplified by taking zazen posture, we have an inclination towards calm. An image came to mind, and I know it's it's limited in many ways, but I want to share it anyway. I just got this image of, you know, a power drill. And the one commonality between concentration and a drill is it's on one point and it has the ability to penetrate, to enter deeply into. As you drill into something, there's, there's smoke that rises up. There's, there's the dust. There's, there's this side effect of the permeating into. The thing that's important to connect with is that the penetrating into, the calm abiding, the resting of attention intentionally is is staying, can stay despite whatever else is kicked up. So in this sense, the only feedback, the only criteria you're doing it right is that you choose to reconnect attention whenever it disconnects.
to being steadfast in application fully enough that there's not much room, if any, for critical mind to assess how it's going. This is true whether we're doing a one-pointed kind of practice or we're doing a practice where we're just resting in the nature of awareness. It's essentially the same intentionality of presence. If we fully are consenting to awareness, there's not much room for conceptual activity. And even if it's there, we're just, we're, we are embedded. We're immersed in that wakefulness. So in other words, to be so wholehearted that there's not even time to assess how it's going. To cut through the mind that is alternating between it's going well, it's not going well. We have emotional reactions to our own biased assessments that affect the output of our effort. We, we all of us have the capacity to really just immerse. I believe that sometimes we under appreciate our own capacity for wholehearted practice. We believe or we give much more power to the mind than is actually there. Because the mind is ephemeral. The mind is a word with no correlation in experience. All of us have more capacity to be non-reactive, to penetrate, to permeate, to let things be. Interesting inquiry could be, what do I like about having a busy mind? What do I like about not being concentrated, about not going deeper in my practice? Is there something about it that I actually really like? Because we do have the ability over time with sustained effort to to go beyond it, to expand it, to expand the context of it. Some folks in interview brought up a really interesting place in practice. And that is the nothing is happening perception. And they were saying that they were looking in the mirror and nothing was happening. And my very first thought was, great, nothing's happening. That's really good. It means the mind is not making up stories. You know, the, the judgmental thoughts, they don't have to be there. They're completely optional. You can just totally ignore them and they don't have near as much weight. So they said, nothing, nothing is happening. And so right there, that gives us some you know, feedback about our understanding of what, are doing, what we're doing. We want something to happen. And 
Now, what's true about that is that with sustained effort, the practice opens up. Practice opens up. That's part of why it's valuable to read the words, chant the words of the great teachers, because they sing the reality of what happens when we see this through, when we really sustain. So potential is something we intuit. But nothing happening is coming from the mind that is, is, is seeking. So there's a particular kind of uh, skill we are benefited by. So when we arrive at the time of nothing happening, that's a good thing. Even if it's just a moment of nothing happening, a good thing. And the problem comes in that we interpret that. We interpret as we're not trying hard enough, or it's boring, or I'm not doing it right. We try to make things a little bit more exciting. Rather, we have to stay content and consent to this basic, simple presence with nothing happening. And then there's the possibility of a deeper seeing. And then there's a possibility of a deeper abiding. It's like we have to go through our own allergy to the absence of drama. That was good, so I want to say that again. We have to go through our own allergy to the absence of drama. We're recovering the ability to exist without directionality. To exist without always being animated by the impulse to do something about something. Other, other animals clearly know how to do this. Somehow it gets conditioned out of us. We're recovering the the art of existing without always needing to wring more juice out of the moment. It's the very belief that there needs to be more juice that obscures the juice. It keeps us looking for something that's not here. And what is here cannot really foreground, can't really bloom. This is part of what the teachings that I always found, especially when I was younger, very off-putting about desirelessness are pointing at. A lot of teachers, particularly like in the Indian tradition, they'll say desirelessness is the path. In other words, we learn to not always try to wring more juice out of our existence. And then we find juice. And then we don't need juice. We think about functioning, especially now functioning in times that seem to be heating up emotionally. This ability to exist with nothing happening is, I think, vital a vital space. It's vital for intuition. 
intuition needs space to arise in. Intuition, for many of us, comes through our bodies. They have to be inhabited. And we have to be with, sensitive to that inhabitation in order to get that intuition. For vision. This kind of space allows for a novelty of thought. One of the belief systems that I hear sometimes is if we were to really mellow out our minds, then we'd be less intelligent. And we really use our intelligence to make money and win friends. And so there's this fear that, no, I don't want to let go of my mind at all because that is threatening to my well-being on these different levels. But what we find, the reality is, is when the mind comes to relative stability and emptiness, our thinking is much more lucid and we have access to more perspectives. Usually there's no room because the very same programs are just playing over and over and over. Some of you have heard that statistic that some research said that we think 98% of the same thoughts every day. And there's very little gap between them. So the ability to be with nothing happening, which now I'm getting impatient with that phrase because it's not right, with everything that is happening is more accurate. The ability to be in that space is the foundation for any kind of relationship that is satisfying to any degree. Without that, then people, they're just something to bounce our own ideas off or, or some kind of flat surface with no dimensionality. Certainly have to have this space in order to empathize, in order to care about people, to be in touch with how we care about them. So this work that we are doing here, as we take it up wholeheartedly, has a deep significance. Is it going to put out a fire? Well, it might put out the fire in our own minds. That's one that we can have some control over. So one of these will happen first. The world will end or we will. It's a given. And then it will begin again. Because life is not on and death is not off. So we could say the most, the thing to most be worried about is to worry about losing our dignity, losing our gratitude, losing our wholeness of vision. Because everything else will be lost. Impermanence. Impermanence. Everything else will be lost. 
and that will be regained in a new form, in a new way. Transformation. There are so many ways to not be free in samsara. And it won't become something else other than samsara without our waking up. Reminds me of Einstein's quote, that a problem created with one level of consciousness cannot be resolved with the same level of consciousness. So equanimity makes it possible to see how we're seeing makes it possible to get perspective on the perspective that we used to be so embedded in, we didn't know it. The outlook that was, was we were so snugly held in, it couldn't be seen. So I'm emphasizing the deepening of meditation because you can do it. Because everybody is equipped because it will really serve us now and for whatever the future brings. Could say it's an encouragement to put faith in neuroplasticity. Faith in cause and effect, the cultivate the cultivatedness, the cultiv- cultivatableness, cultivatableness of the mind. There is no way that a continual returning to presence will not bear its fruit because cause and effect operates very realistically for us. It may be a future version of you that reaps the benefit, but there's no way that a training in presence will not bear fruit. Causes have their effects. It's not mystical. So please take advantage of these remaining hours of the retreat. And know that you're not doing some rarefied spiritual exercise, you are doing what it takes for a human being to be sane. And it may be getting more difficult to be sane, all the more reason to really dig into this element of the Dharma. Equanimity, calm abiding, we're fully equipped. We're fully equipped. So please... Have confidence in your own ability and give that gift to you and others of that sanity. Thank you.